before we get started, I would like to um, ask that you remember a couple of young men that will be leaving today. Um, Kaylin and Anthony will be going to, uh, for seven weeks, they're going to be going to um, blindness school. So we would just ask that you remember them in their prayers, that they keep them safe, uh, that they would be successful, that they'd graduate, and that they would be able to get a job when they get back. Uh, get back. But remember Kaylin and Anthony, if you would. <clears throat> good morning, and I hope everyone's had a good first week of the year. Our text this morning um, will be from the book of Exodus chapter 6, and we will read in a few minutes the first 13 verses. Um, one of the things that um, I, I try to do as I approach any text of Scripture is ask a handful of questions, and I've found that they are helpful in kind of being able to unpack what God is communicating to us. A couple of them is, number one, and this is not exhaustive or in any, in any particular order, when was it written? Not only when was it written, but about whom was it written at that time? And in the case of our text today, Moses writes the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Well, this is going to be after toward the end of Moses' ministry that he writes this, but the people that he writes about, they experience this as they go, but it is written for the future generations. So what is God communicating to us in his written word? Who are the intended hearers? And in this case, like I said, the intended hearers are for the generations following the wilderness generation, the Exodus generation. And, and two things, it's a twofold, and it's, it's one that I have kind of in the last few years found more helpful when I come to a text of Scripture is asking the question, where does the, where does it fall in the overall narrative, specifically redemption promised, redemption accomplished? Old Testament is redemption promised. From the fall in the garden to Christ and his ministry, all of those promises point forward to a particular uh, promise of redemption from sin. The New Testament is Christ's accomplishment. We look backwards and show how those promises are fulfilled in Christ. Redemption has been accomplished. Therefore, we can learn what God is communicating to us through these things. And I say that in, um, in uh, our Sunday school class the last few uh, months, one of the things that's helpful when you approach specifically the Old Testament is um, when we approach the Bible, we can be confident that what it says to us is not only true, but it is exactly what God had intended for us to know. There's a lot of things in human history we do not know. But we can be confident that what God has chosen to reveal to us in the pages of Scripture are true. There's a lot of gaps, and we will see that in some of what we are doing this morning. There are gaps in people's lives that we simply, even the characters that we know a lot about, such as Moses, we really don't know that much about him. But we do know what God has intended for us to know. So to kind of, uh, along those lines, 
a timeline. Last week, Pastor Tim took us through Genesis. So in the idea of redemption being promised, we begin with just an overview of Genesis to kind of lead us up to where we are in the book of Exodus. So we've got the fall. And every time you've got a fall and you've got a promise of redemption. In Genesis 3, our first parents sin. All of creation falls into sin. But then the promise of a serpent crusher will come from the seed of the woman. There's that promise of redemption. We proceed through the flood as evil proceeds through um, from the fall. Evil is so wicked that God judges the entire earth save one family. Eight people, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Eight people and some animals are preserved through the ark. But the promise, and we see it uh, in the sky with the rainbow, that God will never, ever judge the entire earth by the floodwaters again. And every time there's a rainbow, he says that is him remembering his promise to his people to never destroy the earth again. And just as a little bit of an aside, that was a total global flood. There is evidence of it throughout our world. And the pre-flood world and the world we live in today, while it's the same planet, the pre-flood world we know very little about, and it was a far different world than we live in today. People lived for hundreds of years in the pre-flood world. In our day, they do not. And just, again, as a bit of an aside, something I've been kind of talking through and looking through, and it's, it's, it's kind of helpful, is there is an arrogance that we have, and it's every generation has it, and it's, it's called uh, chronological snobbery, that we think the further away from sin we get, that the smarter we get. Those people back in those days were far, far more ignorant than we are. I can actually make a pretty solid case that they were probably superior in, in intellect than we are. Uh, and there's a lot of things, but these are kind of things that I kind of hit that helps us to, as we approach scripture, at least it helps me. And by the way, that's what you're getting today is how I work through these texts and it, how it works through in my mind. So hopefully, um, the Lord's gracious and, 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 uh, it makes sense to you as well. So then we get Babel. The, it's the flood. Surely that fixes everything, right? We start with the favored Noah and his family. So everyone's gone and things are going to get better, right? Nope. We have the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. God comes down and judges the people. He scatters the people and confuses their language. And then the promise is Genesis 12 with Abraham. He creates the nations in the scattering at Babel. And then he immediately calls a man named Abram from Ur the Chaldeans out from the nations and he makes a promise to him that he will make a great nation out of Abraham and those that bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And then he ratifies a covenant with him in Genesis 15. And this is where Exodus is foretold. The promise made to Abraham, the covenant ratified with Abraham in Genesis 15 says that you, your people will be sojourners in a land, not their own for over 400 years, but I will bring them out with great possessions. That is the Exodus foretold. So again, the end of Genesis 
to the beginning of Exodus, where we're going to be this morning, there's over 300 years of time that elapsed. That's what I was talking about with knowing where we are in the story. We read and we complete Genesis 50, and then we pick up the next morning with Exodus chapter 1, and that's, that's the next day, right? It's 300 years have elapsed. There's a lot of things that happened in those 300 years we don't know anything about. But what we do know, we have here in Scripture. So again, a brief overview now of the book of Exodus. The first 15 chapters, God delivers his people. We see the introduction, the first, it opens up with a brief genealogy of the people of Jacob, Israel, that were brought into the land. Again, this was what Pastor Tim talked about yesterday, I mean, last week with Joseph and preserving the people through the famine. And, and because of Joseph, Jacob and his family find favor in Egypt. Well, 300 years later, the book opens up and there arose a king in Egypt, a Pharaoh in Egypt that didn't know Joseph. But immediately we see that the motivations for Pharaoh's uh, attack and his um, oppression and the harsh dealings with which he deals with the people of Israel is precisely because God's fulfilling his promise in them. For what has happened over 300 plus years, one thing we are sure of, God has preserved and multiplied the people, just as he promised Abraham he would do. So they'd grown to a great number, so much so that, that Pharaoh was concerned that should a foreign nation attack or they just decide to revolt, they outnumber us or they fight against our enemies or fight with our enemies against us and overthrow us. So Pharaoh is concerned about his kingdom and preserving his rule and his reign. And again, just a little bit of a, a side there is Pharaoh is not just a human king. He is just a human king, but in his mind and the minds of the Egyptians, he is a God. He is the incarnate incarnation of the Egyptian God, Ra. And every Pharaoh is considered to be this. So we're going to see these conflicts that God has with this so-called deity that he thinks he is. And they are going to uh, serve to uh, show Pharaoh to be a fool. So God delivers his people. And verse, uh, chapters 15 and 18 is the wilderness testing. God leads them out of Egypt into the wilderness. And again... The book tells us, Exodus tells us that 600 men, not including women and children, leave Egypt. If there's just one woman and one child for every man, that's 1.8 million people. Probably more than that. It probably pushes two to two and a half million people leave Egypt at the Exodus, including the wealth and the riches of Egypt and the livestock. There's not 7-Elevens along the side of the road that they can stop and eat. They have to carry their food with them. This is a mass of humanity. This is not insignificant. As this mass of humanity leaves Egypt with the wealth of Egypt, 
this would be concerning to the surrounding nations. They would take heed. And we read later in, as we get to uh, Joshua and Jericho, oh yeah, they've, they've been very aware of this mass of people moving through the wilderness. But also they would have been vulnerable because they, in the ancient world, you lived in walled cities that were protected. This is a mass of humanity without the walls, physical walls to protect them. Yet they wander, as we know, because we know the story, they wander for over 40 years in a wilderness, unprotected by physical walls. But they have the protection of the Almighty, and as such, they are untouchable. So they get to Sinai, and chapters 19 through 24, we get the revealing of the law to Moses. And when God reveals his law, he is revealing his character to his people. And at Sinai, along with the law, God also reveals to us in chapter 25 through 31, he lays out what the tabernacle should look like. He, he gives them the plans for the tabernacle. And then in 32 through 34, we get Israel's rebellion. Now keep in mind, they've seen all kinds of miracles. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've been led through the wilderness by fire at night and by cloud during the day. They witnessed the plagues that devastated this mighty nation Egypt in the ancient day. They saw all of these things. And then Moses goes up on the mountain and quickly they rebel. They forget everything that they had seen or learned. And they create the golden calf. They make a golden calf out of the riches that God has given them of Egypt. They take it and make an idol out of it and begin to worship it. Sinful man is a fool. And we all should be able to say amen because we have, we're sinful. We do, sin makes you do stupid stuff. And this is... It's, it's just very uh, stupid for them to do. Yet, we can't judge them because, again, we are just like them. We behave the same way they behave. We see God working in our lives, and then how quickly, how quickly can we ignore or forget what God has done? And then the final 35 through 39, um, Israel's artisans, God uh, tells Moses to uh, allow these, these gifted of, of Israel to prepare to build the tabernacle. And then finally, in chapter 40, they build the tabernacle. Now, Exodus, and if I was to just give you a brief overview of the entire book, it's, it is redemptive history unfolding before us. God tells us in the book of Exodus what he is going to do. Our first parents sin and fall in the garden. Then they are taken. They have, they're, now they are slaves to sin. And they, are, they, are, they enter the wilderness of the world. And God reveals himself to them. He reveals himself to them. He reveals his character to them. He displays his mighty works to them. And then he shows them his dwelling place. And his dwelling place looks just like, and it has pictures and allusions to the garden before the fall. The nature and the ornamentation in the, uh, around the temple 
pictures a restoration of what, has, what, what they have left and what, what, what they lost at the fall. And a restoration back to the garden where God dwelled with Adam and Eve, our first parents. He walked with our first parents in the garden. And the tabernacle is a picture that will follow this people throughout their wilderness wanderings until they uh, come into the land where they will build the temple, which is a stationary site. The tabernacle is the temple that is mobile. They're able to take it up and move throughout with it. But this is God saying, I'm gonna dwell with my people and I'm restoring what you lost at the fall and, and restoring what was lost. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and go to the text. Begin reading in, we'll begin reading in verse one of chapter six. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this, his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and grace towards us. We confess our need to be led by you every moment of every day. Lead us this morning through your word, teach us from it, transforming us by it, prompting us to take its truths into this world, a world desperate to hear it, with full confidence that you will accomplish your purposes through it. We love and we praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. One thing if you, you should have picked up on in these 13 verses is the how many times the I will statement was said by God. It is not, these are definite statements of what he will do. It does not matter what Moses or the people thinks about Pharaoh and their conditions. When God says, I will do something, you can count on him to do it. 
So we look at this text and uh, you, you see, you can kind of divide Moses' life up into three sections. Moses lived to be 120 years old. The first 40 years of Moses' life, he lives in Pharaoh's house, learning the custom of the Egyptians at the highest order. And then we know the story. We know why he flees. He flees because he rescues one of his brethren from being attacked by an Egyptian and he kills, strikes the Egyptian and the Egyptian dies and he buries him in the sand. And the next day, Moses returns to his people and he sees two of Hebrew men fighting amongst themselves. And he intervenes and, and tries to stop it and they accuse him and ask him, are you gonna do to us what you did to the Egyptian? So in fear, Moses flees because he thinks, surely Pharaoh, if he doesn't know it already, he will learn of what I have done and my, I will pay with my life. So he flees to Midian. And in Midian, that's, that's part two of his preparation. Part one, he prepares him in the way, God prepares Moses in the way of the Egyptians. That's part two, he, Moses flees to Midian, he marries, he has a family, and he is a shepherd for 40 years. He is being prepared by God to do what God is calling him to do. He knows the ways of the Egyptians, he knows their language, he knows their customs, and now he is learning to be a shepherd, to shepherd God's people out of slavery. So at 80 years old, Moses is called to go back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. This happens at the burning bush. And at the close of chapter five, I call this kind of the, this is where we pick up in, in, in chapter six here. I call this, Moses has a bit of an Elijah type pity party as chapter five closes out. He goes back and he goes to Pharaoh and the, 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 what plays out with Pharaoh and uh, his response to, to Moses doesn't go like Moses might think it would go. So he returns and he says, Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Kind of that, Mo, that Elijah in the cave as he runs after the prophets of Baal and he has a bit of a pity party and God has to remind him. And here's God reminding Moses like he reminded Elijah back in uh, Kings. He tells Moses, now you will see what I will do. And this starts that series of I will statements of what I will do. He says, with a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And here in verse uh, two and three is a um, bit of a controversial text. It says, I, uh, uh, I, the Lord, appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, I read a lot of commentaries, a lot of what people have historically thought about this particular text, and there's, there's two that I have found plausible, one more than the other. Um, one is that because the evidence is overwhelming, in Genesis that Yahweh by his name was known to the patriarchs. That is not disputed. And even in Job, which was written around the same time as the patriarchs, that word also Yahweh is known by Job somehow. So 
What could he mean by this? Is it he is going to reveal himself in a way, in a further way than he has to the patriarchs? Possibly. This is the second one I think is the more plausible. And if you read it this way, because the way of the Hebrew structure, and I am by any, no stretch a Hebrew scholar, but the structure of the Hebrew language and the structure of our language, word for word doesn't work. We have to kind of uh, put the, um, the words together in a, that, that would make sense in an English sentence. So I think it is probably more of a rhetorical. So if we read it as the Lord, I did not make myself known to you. The name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. That if it's rhetorical and you swap the, by my name, the Lord, did I not make myself known to them? The answer is yes. That is what I believe is a more uh, actual, what I think is what he is saying rather than saying he didn't reveal himself to them because we know he did. So again, that's just a little bit extra I found fascinating. I thought this is an interesting text. I'd never really kind of paid attention to it. Um, but we know that whatever difficulties we have in interpreting any scripture, the, the problem always lies with us, not with the scripture itself. And God is not, um, um, he doesn't contradict himself. So what appears to be a contradictory statement is not, there is an answer to this. So God delivers his people. And as he delivers them, they enter the wilderness and they grumble. And the problem with them as well as us today is they desired freedom from oppression. That was the way they cried. Deliver us from the oppression of the Egyptians. Rather than asking for their true need, and that is sin's slavery. They asked for immediate relief, which is why when they get into the wilderness, it does not take long, and they start to grumble, and they complain, and they tell Moses, why have you brought us out here for us to die? We would be better off back in Egypt. The same Egypt they just cried about getting delivered from, they're crying to go back and grumbling. Why? Because they sought temporary, temporal relief, not the relief that they truly need. They need and needed deliverance from slavery, but it wasn't from Egypt. It was from sin. So they grumble and they cry for deliverance because they see that and perceive that slavery in Egypt is a far less cost to pay than true freedom from their true problem, which is freedom, which can only be found in Christ. It is only in salvation through Christ that you can find that freedom. But that was far too costly for them. They still wanted comforts of Egypt just out from under the hands of the Egyptians. They're not unlike us. We want ease and comfort. But are we willing to pay the price for true freedom? Because true freedom is costly. It can be very costly. It has cost 
Many people, every one of the disciples were martyred. Why? Because the cost of true freedom in Christ cost them their lives here. But eternally, they, they live forever. We have to count the costs. So we see, again, Moses is the deliverer. Moses points to the true deliverer. The true deliverer we find is Christ. He, like Joseph last week, points to Jesus. Moses points to Jesus, the true deliverer. And um, it says in, in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, the second giving of the law before they enter the land, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's speech, if you ever want a great just overview of kind of redemptive history and what God accomplished through the patriarchs, Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 is a great overview, kind of a Cliff's Notes version of what is happening. But in Acts 7 verses 37 through 40, this is what Stephen says about Moses. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him and thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. This is the true Moses. The true deliverer is found in Christ. He is the only one that can deliver us from our true need and our true slavery, and that is the bondage and slavery of sin. Jesus is also the true exodus from Egypt. Again, which would symbolize, as often it does, Egypt, Babylon, these are synonymous with worldly systems. So the true exodus from Egypt is an exodus from the world, and Jesus is the true exodus from Egypt. Turn with me, if you would. Let's go to Luke chapter 9 and begin in verse 28. Beginning in verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing, clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerus at Jerusalem. The other two synoptic gospels use the words Transfigured. This is the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. Um, Matthew and Mark use the actual word transfigured, but Luke's narrative of this event is different. He highlights things differently. All three of them talk about Moses and Elijah being there. And by the way, Moses and Elijah are representative of the law and the prophets. Again, this should point us to the fact that as we've gone through with the students, this uh, exercise, which has been very profitable. This series that we have been in with the students for over a year now is this Luke 24. All of scriptures point to me, Jesus unpacking on the Emmaus road 
Everything points to him, all of it. It points to him and he fulfills all of it. But here in Luke, he uses the phrase, the appearance of his face was altered, drawing out the parallel to Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses radiated from being on the mountain in the presence of God as he is given the law. And as he comes down, the people are afraid. But Moses' glow, glory that he glowed with was a radiation, a reflection of glory. Christ's glory is more magnificent than Moses because it emanates from within. His flesh fails his glory. And for a brief moment on the transfiguration, these men got to see this unveiled or an unveiling of the glory of Christ. So we see this parallel of Sinai with the mountain of transfiguration. And the word here that says the departure, which he was about to accomplish, is the same word, exodus. It is the word exodus. It means to exit. A way out, departure, is the meaning of this word. Jesus' departure at Jerusalem is the way out. In Exodus from Egypt, they left, they left the slavery of the Egyptians. In Jerusalem, what Christ accomplishes on the cross, he makes a way out from sin slavery. He accomplishes that only which he can accomplish. In John 14, it says, let not your hearts be troubled. This, again, John 14, and we're gonna read, I'm going to read the first six verses of 14. This is John's narrative of, of the disciples last night with Jesus there at the uh, preparing to have... Um, the, the Passover feast with Jesus one last time. This was the night of his arrest. And he has this wonderful teaching section in John of what is about to happen. And in 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ was going to the cross. And in the cross, they can't go. They could have gone. And some of them do afterwards. They are martyred on a cross. They're crucified. But they simply died. What Christ does on the cross only he can do. He goes where they cannot go and he accomplishes a departure from sin slavery because on the cross, he enters, as Hebrews tells us, to the heavenly temple, that which the earthly only pointed to. And he enters the heavenly temple, not made with hands, not of this creation. And he appears before the holy, holy throne and the holy altar and offers a once for all sacrifice for sin. That is where he was going. That is where only he could go. And that was his purpose for all of it. Everything is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything. So through the cross on Calvary, Jesus provides the way 
out of slavery into newness of life in him. That is where we find true freedom. So how do we apply this? I mean, so what? Okay, we leave here and we got to go out into the world. Uh, you know, we, we, tomorrow the alarm goes off and we, we go about our day and we, we start our work day over again. How do we take the truths of God's word and apply them in a meaningful way that doesn't seem to be just insignificant in this world that seems to be increasingly mad? What are we then to do? How are we then to live? <clears throat> Four years ago, almost to the day I stood right up here, there was a young man getting ready to preach to us this particular morning. And as um, the Lord would have it, we were going on a bit of a transition. This would have been the first week or two at the most of 2020. And in 2019, Brian had moved on and accepted a job with, full-time job with Sanford University. Brother Barry had just retired. And the other three were either on their way out of town on vacation or coming back from vacation. So we were left pastorless at that time. Drew and I were on staff, but we were not ordained elders at the time. So we had a young man that I had had the privilege of knowing that prior spring and summer named Josh Evans, and he was coming to preach to us that morning. I got to know him, and we became really good friends uh, through being able to coach his oldest son in baseball at the time. So I stood right there, and I asked Josh, I said, how are you doing? You need anything? And he looked at me, and he said, to be honest, I'm nervous, I'm a bit intimidated. Why? He said, the people here know their Bible. I understand that feeling now. And what he said was a compliment, not only to us, but I think a testimony to the faithfulness of the man that has led this church for, for 20 plus years. And his faithfulness to proclaim the word of God regardless of what people think of him. And the growth that that and the faithfulness to the word of God and to proclaiming the word of God and trusting that it accomplishes its purpose, I think is why that man was able to stand there and say that. Now all that to say, 2020, you know, we all have moments in history and in our lives that are just kind of etched in our minds. We know where we were when, they, when you mention it. Uh, for us, for me, 9-11. I know exactly where I was when I heard about it. I, I can almost recall that day, moment by moment, the entire day that I read about that. 2020 was a significant for us because at this particular time, four years ago today, as I look out across here, a lot of faces are different. A lot of people we have lost. A lot of people have not come back since 2020 and the shutdowns and the things that we would face because of covid but I also can look out and see a lot of new faces. And the faithfulness that was demonstrated through the difficulties and the unknown of what 2020 and 2021 would bring us, faithfulness, God was faithful to us as well by bringing us more and more people. All that to say, we must be faithful. We, because of Christ, have been given, and this is the last uh, we'll wrap it up here. We've been given not just the gospel, but the ministry of reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapters three through five. 
lays this out for us. We are the treasures in jars of clay that have been given the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by which men and only this message is by uh, how men will be saved. We have been given this ministry of reconciliation, not just reconciling sinners, but creation is being reconciled and every one of God's enemies are being placed under the feet of King Jesus. And we, if you are born again, were those enemies that have been placed under God's feet, under Christ's feet. Because we were at once enmity with God. We were enemies of God. Prior to our salvation, we were all enemies. So how do we face the world? Again, we, it starts in our homes. We must believe the promises of God. What has, he given the, what has he given us charge of? Fathers, mothers, raise your children. How are you to raise your children? The Bible is not silent on that. It speaks clearly on that. Train your children. That's how, we, that's, that's how we affect this mad world. We train the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we're very careful at who else gets their ear. Very careful who else gets their ear. He's given them to us for a reason. It starts in the church. How do we encourage one another? When we gather here, the book of Hebrews also says, do not neglect the, do not neglect the gathering so that we can encourage one another. Does God need to hear from us? He does not need anything. By definition, he needs nothing. Do we need to be here amongst God's people? We do need it. We need it. We need it as if we need food, physical food and drink. We need it more than that. And take this encouragement and take the truths of the gospel and God has placed us in certain spheres of influence. Every one of us, is, it's unique, but God has got us, each and every one of us, in places and influence around people that are unique to each one of us. Live the gospel out in front of them. Live it out in front of them. Take opportunity to share it with them. Because as a new, as a new year dawns, we face, once again, the unknown. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what the next month will bring or the coming years. We have no idea. But what we do know is who is ruling and reigning. We do know that king. We do know who, uh, who he is and what he is doing. So we take what we don't know and what we do know. And we have faith in that which we know. And what we do know is Christ is ruling and reigning. And he is reconciling all things to himself. And we should take heart. Because he has overcome the world that we can take to this new year and to this unknown um, of 2024. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you again for, for your word, for your truth, for, I thank you for this church, for these people. I, I pray that you would continue to work in and through us. Father, I pray that as we face the unknowns of this world and, and as it seems to be spiraling out of control, may we always be reminded that it is not out of your control, that everything is happening exactly as you would have ordained it to happen. May we take heart in that and take heart in the fact that you have overcome the world because of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his, in his name we pray. Amen.